0: Hello and welcome to this edition of Billionaires in Boxes. I'm your host as always, Phil Pelluccia, and today I am joined by the one and only Chris Turner. Uh, Chris, I'm very excited to have you here. Welcome to the show.
1: Good afternoon, Phil. Great to be here.
0: It's lovely to see you, mate, and this has been a long time in the making, this interview, so I'm glad that we finally got there together. Um, For those people who are now frantically Googling your name and saying, I know that face from somewhere... Do you want to just kind of give us a brief introduction to, to who you are and what you do?
1: Well, I'm a, I'm a former professional footballer who played for Sheffield Wednesday twice, Sunderland, Manchester United and Lake Orient. had a coaching career a um, bit at Lake Orient, Wolves, Leicester, managed Hartlepool, managed Sheffield Wednesday, managed Stockport County, been director of football back at Hartlepool on two occasions. and uh, Currently, I'm working for the LMA. I look after four to five managers, I mentor them, and I do a little bit of work that like I've been doing this morning for the FA on commissions, uh, where, where managers or players have um, broken the law and we have to make a decision on how many games to suspend them for or uh, ban them from the game. Um, and basically that that that's my lifestyle and where I am at the moment in in forty five seconds I think
0: fantastic I love it that's probably the quickest you've ever introduced explained your entire career, isn't it?
1: yes <laughs> by far by far yeah yeah oh,
0: I love that. well look let's let's give it the respect it deserves and take it all the way back because you've had a phenomenal career in the game so where where did it all begin for you were you always a, a football fanatic as a kid did you start playing at a young age when did when did you find football or when did football find you
1: well, I've always been a football supporter. My mum and dad took me to watch Sheffield Wednesday when I was about three, four years of age. And I've been, I went, used to go to every home game, some away games of them. I've stood on the Cops at Liverpool, at Manchester United, at Arsenal, at Chelsea, watching Sheffield Wednesday in the 60s. Um, when I became about 10 years, 10-year-old, 10 I, I used to like playing out as an outfield player from a school team at uh, Shooters Grove. In Sheffield Um, and um, one afternoon we were playing in a -a five-a-side tournament and the goalkeeper failed to turn up for the tournament, it was poorly, so I stepped in, went in goal, we weren't the greatest team uh, in the competition so I conceded a number of goals but I also made a lot of supposedly good saves, excellent saves and watching the tournament was Sheffield uh, boys under 11's manager who asked our school teacher why hasn't this lad been along for the trials that we had 2 or 3 weeks ago and the answer to that was he did but he didn't get in as a midfield right. player okay. he said well i'd like him to come and join our training sessions for the Sheffield under-11s, yeah. um, Tuesday, Thursday nights, and um, let's have a look at him as a goalkeeper. And that's how mm-hmm. my career in goalkeeping was, was launched. And thereafter, I was placed in goal. Didn't like playing in goal, I must admit. I preferred to be an outfield player. I still played yeah. outfield from a school team, but I was yeah. playing in goal for Sheffield boys. Yeah. And, um, you know, thereafter, my career in football started... And then at uh, 14, I went to Manchester United. They wanted to sign me. And um, a chap called Derek Dooley, who was a, um, a legend for Sheffield Wednesday, and then went on to be chairman of Sheffield United, he came to my parents' house at Stannington Sheffield and I signed schoolboy forms for Sheffield Wednesday at 14. I left school at 15. and uh, No exams, nothing. Um, which is not what I would say is the best way but fortunately for me it's worked out okay Um, and I started uh, at 16 uh, as an apprentice professional footballer and that's how I started in in professional football at Sheffield Wednesday at 16
0: That's really cool I love that story So, and I was going to say you seem far too sane to be part of this goalkeepers union I don't think I've met a goalkeeper Hmm. who's not a little bit loopy um so there's got to be some i mean especially as you play professional right there's got to be something uh slightly different about you that wants to be in between those posts getting the ball smashed in your direction on a regular (laughs) basis and to put yourself in in the way of it so uh, but actually to touch on that education piece which is interesting uh, I I've seen how much that's changed over the years, even from when when I was in school, you know, the 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 players who were playing professionally or for some of the larger clubs in particular, they were almost admitted from education. It was like, don't worry about them, they're gonna be a footballer. Um, so so education was almost forgotten. Whereas now it feels much more that it plays a pivotal part, that it's like you're not allowed to play unless you're getting your grades up and they're more student athletes as they would use them as the term in America than they've got a free pass because they're a, a football player
1: well that's right i mean if you listen um to professional footballers today in their interviews after games uh, or prior to games they're they you know they're well spoken they, they they come across well now they're taught a lot more um how to present themselves than, than when i first started and, and you're correct in saying that uh, education didn't play any part in the young players um, at, um, at the clubs because they all felt um, that they were going to become professional footballers and what else outside of that didn't really matter. Whereas today, mm. everything is now, which is more of a responsibility now and quite correct, so for <laughs> professional clubs, to ensure that the young people, young players... Um get the educational opportunities so that if they don't become a professional footballer, which is the vast majority for obvious reasons, um, they have something to fall back on uh, or something to help them, enable them to to seek something else in, in life and I totally agree with it. As I said, fortunately for me, I made it as a professional footballer and I've been employed in professional football now for over 45 years um, but um, that's having said that, I do wish I had some qualifications along the line, um, but I'm a little mm. bit too old for that now, so I won't go down that route now. But um, you know, <laughs> I always say to, to to young players that the education side of life is, is is very important.
0: Well, Chris, I want to back that up. So I um, I actually you got like late qualifications later in life, but I got kicked out of school at 14 with no qualifications. And when I got medically retired in my early twenties from football, I remember having a really dark and quite depressing time of, I don't even know who I am anymore. My identity's lost. That's what I was, was that's what I yeah. was going to be. And yeah. now I, I had nothing and had, almost had to, well, not almost I had to completely rebuild a, a, a new life away from the game Um, And it's only in recent years through my business work that I've actually started to come back and do more in the game. But, um, you know, I'm well aware that I'm blessed in that respect. And and it it gave me a real appreciation for how dark and lonely that feeling can be of not just not being able to play the game, but losing your identity. If If that's all you've wanted to be from the age of five, six years old, and suddenly, for whatever reason, you find yourself unable to do it or having been dropped or not signed or out of contract or whatever, it's a pretty dark and scary place
1: Oh, it, it's very it's, it's difficult for young players even still today that they go into the academies now and their dream is obviously to become a professional footballer and that um, dream can be taken away from them at any age groups going up and you know, as they become 14 and 15, that they really believe it's going to happen. Then at 16, that call comes. You go and see the coaching staff, and um, you, you're pushed over the edge of that cliff. And 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 it's and it's uh-huh. very it's it is very hard. But clubs are are um, are 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 working on it and trying to improve the how to. Uh, Approach these situations for the young players, but it, but it, but it, but it's very hard, very hard.
0: I'm glad I'm glad they are working on that though because it didn't used to be that way. I mean, uh, uh, so I would say even as little as fifteen twenty years ago, I had a friend of mine who I won't say who, but he was playing at a rather large academy in the UK, and uh, they were all waiting for a text at sixteen. They were getting a text to tell them either what the new training schedule was or they didn't get a text to tell them when to come in for training because they weren't coming in for training. And that was how they dealt yeah. with it. It was a text. So people, mm. and I remember him saying, you know, the worst part was everybody texting each other saying, I've got mine, have you got yours? And it's like, yeah. no, mm. I'm still waiting for him. So, I mean, so that's difficult. So I am glad that they're taking more, more responsibility for that. Because before we move on to sort of player development and moving into managing um, your, your managerial career, what was the highlight of your playing career for you? It doesn't even have to have been sort of the the, the the best moment, but what what's the moment that you're most proud of?
1: Well, when I was seventeen I made my league debut for Sheffield Wednesday. We played Walsall at home. In those days, Sheffield Wednesday we were in the third division of four divisions then, one, two, three, and four. Uh, and they were 17 years of age and running down that tunnel, there was only nine ten thousand 10,000 people watching in those days. But I'm playing in front of my mates who I used to stand on the cup and watch the team play. Obviously, mum and dad and etc. Uh, yeah. were there. But to play for Sheffield Wednesday for me was, was pinnacle and unbelievable. Even when, I, when, I, when I, you know, in those days, Really couldn't believe it. It was surreal, um, from watching team from the sixties and then going with my mates in the seventies to watch the team play, to suddenly now be playing was a was a, was, a, was a unbelievable feeling. And even though during my career. Um, play for Manchester United and Sunderland and got to cup finals and won a cup final, etc. Won promotions. You know that very first game stands out immensely for me. And we drew nil nil, and that. I didn't concede it. And in the final five minutes, I made a match-winning save, which got the headlines the next day, and my my career was launched.
0: See, I love that, and it's and it's the team as well. It's your team, and I think that's 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 always going to be special. Well, I mean, that's, that's I you know, I mean.
1: I supported, I managed, I played, you know, uh, for, for, for my team, and it's, uh, yeah. it's it's very rare, very rare.
0: Yeah, that's that's special. So, how did the leap from player into manager go? Because I know that that's not always a smooth transition for everybody, and and not every good player makes a good coach or a good manager. So, did you did you always know once the game finished that you were going to move into into management?
1: Well, I've always wanted to coach um, at the end of my career and, and management was always something that um, if, it, if the opportunity came, I'd like, I'd, I'd like to take it. When I was at Lake Norrie, well, f- finally in the final years of my playing career at uh, at Sheffield Wednesday in about 89, 90, those three years, I did my coaching badges up in Scotland. A good playing friend of mine, Gordon Strachan at the time, we were neighbours over in um, in Wimslow in Cheshire, so I went to Scotland with him, and I did my my A license and, and my B license, which in those days took three years. And um, when I went to Leighton Orient, um, after playing there for a couple of seasons, the manager asked me if I wanted to be the assistant manager, and 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 then my coaching career was was launched from there. When I left Leighton Orient, I was youth team coach at Leicester for 12 months um, with Amir Lesky, was one of my players at Leicester. And then Mark McGee, the manager, moved to Wolverhampton Wanderers and I spent three and a half years at Wolverhampton Wanderers as a youth team coach there, coaching the likes of uh, Robbie Keane, um, um, Robbie Keane, Keith Andrews, Matt Murray, and Jolian Lescott, who all went on to play internationally for the clubs. And we had a, a super team at Wolves at that time.
0: Great. I love that. Do you know what's really fun about this? And we'll touch on some of the players that you've worked with because I know you've discovered some and worked with some some big names over the years. Um, I, I love that there's... Uh, Life has almost supported you along the way with this, and that's what, that's what happens when you're in flow, right? So you went and did your trial as a midfielder and didn't get it, and then <laughs> somebody just so happened to be there to watch you play and as a goalkeeper because someone didn't turn up for the game. And then you want to go into management, and, and Gordon's a neighbour – um, I mean, and then has the ability to take you up to Scotland and provide you that. So, so I really like the fact that life has supported you with this. It clearly shows that you were meant to be in the game and this is where you were supposed to be. So life was, you were swimming with the tide as opposed to against it. And I really like that.
1: Well, that's right. And there's there's many, there's many um, things when you look back in life and, and, and you didn't realise it at the time, but you, you do now and you think, well, that yeah, look plays a major part. In in, in in, a lot of people who, who are successful in whatever they do, whether it be in football or outside football. There'll be some sort of lucky um, situation that, that helped him, um, a, a, you know, along the way. And and um, that particular morning, way back then, which is now 50-odd uh, years ago, um, if, um, if um, Colin Beresford, who was a goalkeeper had turned up that morning who knows i may mean, never made a professional yeah. footballer who knows what i don't know but i always i'm a great believer that um, um you know if you're good enough football will find you and i say that many times to to younger players and players um work as hard as possible and if the the opportunity will arise at some time if you if you stick at it
0: uh... I love that. Well, you've you've discovered a lot of players along the way and and, and seen that talent from a very young age. So uh, when you're looking at that, I've always been curious about this. Were you looking at somebody that was just better head and shoulders than their peer group? Or was it something about their attitude that you saw in them? Or uh, when you're trying to identify that talent, so when you think back about some of the great players that you've just named and, and, and others that you've met and, and, and discovered, how did you know? How did you know that they would make it?
1: um it's in the makeup of the of the of the of the player um you know over the period a long period of time, you see a lot of very good players, a lot of talented players that don't make it and you know uh, it, but always hard to explain, but to become a professional footballer it's not just about talent. It's about attitude, it's about commitment, it's about luck, it's about um, the teams that you play for, um, it's it, it's it's mental, men, mentally um, your mental ability. And, you know, so if you're going in the park and you're seeing somebody play, you'll always be able to see the player that stands out from the rest. Everybody can see mm-hmm. that. You don't need a talent for that. But you also have to be looking at a player um uh, sorry, uh, 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 that players, and you see something in a player. Can you develop that? Can you improve right. him? Can is it, it? Would he be good in? Would he be good in a better team? All these sort of things, and that bit, that comes with experience of having an eye mm. to be able to to spot that. Like I said, you can go to a game, and everybody will tell you the best player on the field. It's pretty obvious; mm. it stands out. But it's the one who doesn't stand out. And the one who you think, "hmm, I quite like him he's got the he's got everything that I can see well, he's playing he's then when you speak to people when I used to sign players, I always used to like to uh, obviously speak to them face to face could look in their eye and and um and uh, see their facial expression when they're talking to you because you can see whether the person really means what he's saying or is he just playing at it. I always remember Chris Waddle when he was manager of Burnley. He released a player called Kevin Henderson, a striker, who was a North East lad. And they used to like northeast lads playing for Hartlepool because they had a feeling for the area. Very difficult to get somebody from down south to travel all the way up to the North to play in League Two and um, convince sure. them to sign for the club. But Kevin Henderson was a local boy. He hadn't scored many goals. He'd only had a flirtation in the Burnley first team. And I spoke with Chris, he says, oh, Kevin works his socks off, gives everything every week. He just lacks the quality to be a first-team player at Burnley. He says, but I can assure you, he'll give you everything. So the day I spoke to Kevin in my office, I was so impressed with him. He looked me straight down the eye and told me what he was going to do. He'll work his socks off. He'll do this. He'll do that. He'll listen. He'll develop. Any yeah, other boy, he played for me for two years. He got 19 and one season and 20-odd goals in the next. And he was absolutely diamond of a boy to work with. And it was great to see him come and be a success at Hartlepool. And once again, It's being able to speak to somebody and get the passion out of them and see the passion in them that makes you believe this boy's got a chance.
0: Okay, so that, that leads on to something quite interesting because I, I like to ask this question whenever I speak to managers. So when we're working with players like that, that's a dream, right? They, they work hard, they, they turn up on, on time for training, they put the graft in, they train as hard as they play, you know, they do what they say they're going to do and, and I imagine he was a good lad to have around the dressing room as well, right? Sort of the earth kind of person. Yeah, What happens the other way? What happens when you have that toxic player or a bit of a prima donna who is a bit of a pain in the backside how How as a manager do you handle that situation i 've always wondered do you you know if somebody's a prima donna but they're a good player, do you almost just put up with the fact that they're a bit of a muppet because they 're really good for you on the field or how much of team chemistry and balance in the changing room does does come into the equation when dealing with players like that
1: well this is this is um all in the um, spirit of a of, of what makes a good manager. Mm. Now, when you go to the coaching courses as 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 I've said earlier, they they don't you, they can't teach you these experiences. No. So you then at some stage will come up against a player or players that um, aren't pulling the weight, aren't. Um, playing as well as what they should do um, and and you've got to handle it. Where's your experience of, of that? You haven't got it. No. So you learn on the job. Fortunately, when I was learning, I always used to, in my youth teams, I always used to coach them, train them, talk to them like first team players mm. because that's what they want to become. So – I'm a great believer in that, you, you, that you, you bring those players up at 16 to 18 in a way of what, how they're going to be expected to perform and handle once they become 18 or 17 and become a first-team player. I started at 17 in the first team. I had two seven-to-halves in front of me. If I didn't come out for a through ball, for a cross or whatever, they absolutely lambasted me. They didn't turn around and look at me as though, oh, he's only a young kid in goal. We've got to look after him. They were talking to me as though a 28-year-old, 30-year-old goalkeeper, and this is what they wanted me to do. Now, for me, right. I have a Sanko swim in that situation. So I learnt a lot in my early part of my career of how to handle dealing with older players because I was the youngest in the team, and that helped me. So you as a manager have a responsibility to all the other players in the squad if somebody's not toying the line or if somebody's getting away with things or you're allowing them a little bit of difference. We had a boy who came to Hartlepool, a boy called Gordon Watson who played for Sheffield Wednesday Charlton, and he had a very serious injury, had to retire and um, But he was a goal scorer Had to retire through injury A number of years later down the line He started training with a friend of mine Called Neil McNabb Who was a coach at Portsmouth And uh, I was talk- My wife was Here's a bit of luck for you My wife was talking to his wife Because we were neighbours Because Neil was an ex-Manchester City player And she said to my wife She says, oh tell Chris Neil's coaching with one of his ex-players so, you know, she said, who's that? She said, Gordon Watson. Mm. So I then got talking to Neil. I said, how is he? He says, well, he's as sharp as anything. He's working hard. He's just training with us. I said, do you think he could still do it? So he said, well, have a look at him. So we flew Gordon up to, North, up to the northeast. Cut a long story short, Gordon used to turn up on a Thursday morning for training, train Friday, play Saturday. Right. So he wasn't he wasn't really full time with us. But yeah. Gordon could score goals and Gordon did score goals. But obviously the other boys in the team, they're him put up in a in a boarding house and, and all these and he was bit ve- he was very charismatic. Um yeah. and he used to take the Mickey out of other players and yeah, I l l liked him, loved him, hated him. But right. as a player, he scored goals and he won your matches. So I had to integrate Gordon into that sort of environment but also say to the other boys, yeah, but you know Saturday afternoon when we're up against it and we need a goal, you provide him with the chances, he'll get the goals. So, you know, I utilised that to blend him into the environment of of the rest of the squad. Now, the bigger club you go to, so I left Hartlepool, who uh, I knew when I put my head on the pillow... This is a Howard Wilkinson uh, told me this once. When you put your head on the pillow at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night on a Friday, you need to close your eyes knowingly that your team for tomorrow, you know what they're going to do, you know how they're going to play and you know you've done everything to put into them to win tomorrow's game. I had that at Harlepool. I went to Sheffield Wednesday where I had a squad of players who had been used to losing, had been shown or um, shown bad attitudes from foreign players that have been at the club over the last four to five seasons. The club was on the slide. The club was on the slide. They were second bottom, very close to bottom of the championship. And then straight away, I'm at the club I've loved as a boy and that played for. I'm now the manager and mm. I've got a complete different scenario. I had players that didn't want to train. I had players that couldn't train through the week but were deemed fit enough to play on Saturday wow. and so on and so on and so on. I was working to a routine at Hartlepool every Monday to Friday. All the players knew what they were doing, when we did it, how we did it, to the standard that's required. We then transferred into Saturday afternoon, home or away, were winning matches because I left Hartlepool 14 points clear in League wow. Two now gone to a team that's used to losing and I had to learn on the job and you have to learn Mm. how to handle these players who were on a lot lot more money than what they were the players at Hartlepool and you either well and you've inherited
0: somebody else's squad haven't you
1: and I inherited four managers uh, players Mm. who were still there so I had to learn and it was difficult and um, you know uh, some things Uh, And there's a lot that you can't say at the time because it's going to affect your dressing room. And the performance on Saturday, the hardest thing for me as a manager was standing on the touchline at Hillsborough playing against a smaller club than Sheffield Wednesday, but knowing that they've got a better team than what I've Mm. got and knowingly this is going to be a tough game where the fans turn up, Sheffield Wednesday versus Plymouth, we're miles better than bigger club than Plymouth. We're miles of that. And then Plymouth go and play off the pitch because all mm. Sturrock at the time at Plymouth had got a hard-working team similar to what I had at Hartlepool. Uh, now yeah. doing it against me at Sheffield Wednesday with a group of players who who, who, who were all over the place at that particular time. It's, it's like that saying,
0: isn't it? Hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. So That's right, um, 100%. So, uh, like, uh, I understand that. I wanted to ask you, actually, because I know I won't I won't disrespect you by asking you who, because I know that that's off territory. But I know you do a lot of mentoring at the moment for other managers as well across across different leagues, including yes. at the highest level. So did is that because somebody did that for you or people did that for you? Or did you not really have mentors? Because I know you've worked with some phenomenal managers and coaches over the years. Mm-hmm. Were they there to kind of mentor you through this learning process as a manager? Like when no. you were at Sheffield Wednesday, for example, did you have... Someone that you could call the likes of a, a Fergie or someone that you could pick up the phone and say, what the hell am I doing with this situation? Or, or were you just completely alone? No, I
1: was a young manager. When, when you're young, you, you think you can do everything. I've I come right. into management from youth team football, gone to Hartlepool, turned Hartlepool round from a team that were always second, third, fourth, bottom on the fringes of going out of the uh, Football League. I turned them from being mm. round to a team who always finished in the top six the next three years. Right. And then I left them with a team 14 points clear. So you believe mm. that you can do it again in your next job, even though the next job was bigger. Yeah. more pressurising and everything, you still believe you can do it. Obviously, I spoke to managers over the time when I was there, but no, I didn't have anybody really, or I didn't utilise probably managers that have worked with me in the past as a player. Now, I do look after managers now, and they can ring me up at any time, ask me any questions or ask my advice, and that's what I do with, with these managers currently.
0: Well, that's an interesting question. Again, I'll, I'll steer clear of names, but I'm curious. Yeah. You just said, as a young manager, maybe you just didn't utilize it. Maybe people would have been there. Do you still find that with young managers today? Is there still that that level of? Yes. Well, I was a player and I was yeah. here and I've done it. And I, why am I speaking to this yes. guy? Like, do I need a mentor? Right?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah. Interesting. I mean,
1: there was one. There's one manager who I've been working with who is uh, absolutely a gem to work with. Um, he 's out of work at the moment, but he 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 really he was he played at the highest level and he it was his first management job and he really really was into having a mentor of um Of speaking to me two or three times a week before and after games and I really enjoyed that spell working with him and hopefully I'll be working with him as soon as possible when he gets back into a job Um, and I got a great satisfaction from spending an hour on the Saturday night going through his game and his team's Mm. game and what he can do about this and and that, and then the other managers, it's just going to watching them in training, going along, have a general chat with them, and just, just 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 being there for them. I mean, the position's not to tell him you should be playing four four two or you need this or you yeah, need that. Sure. It's just to be there for <laughs> them. It's just to be there for yeah. them.
0: And that's important. I mean, now more so than ever, I mean, always, but now more so than ever with the stresses of social media and the print and digital media. I mean, everything you do is completely under a spotlight, twenty-four-seven, right, and a magnifying glass to boot. So, uh, I can't imagine the stress of, of of all levels. Actually, I mean, having worked with, I mainly work with football federations, but even then, I see the stress of them when there's international yeah. competitions going on. If, if your if your side loses to somebody that they were supposed to win, the atmosphere yeah. is toxic. The press are all <laughs> over the place. It, it's a it's a stressful situation to be in. Um, well, I so, mean, I, I'm well, glad yeah, that yeah, people yeah. have.
1: The thing for me is, is um, uh, the expectations is always difficult, and you know whether you're Arsenal, Liverpool, Manchester City, or you're Torquay United and Scunthorpe, who are the, who are now ex-league clubs really struggling in 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 the um, um, in the National League. And I was only watching last night a podcast of Scunthorpe fan. who've now gone into Conference North. I mean, they were challenging and were in the championship, not too long, distant future, away. But when I played for Manchester United, I always remember we lost the very first game of the season away 1-0 at Arsenal, 55,000 people at Highbury, and we lost 1-0 to an 80-odd-minute goal from Charlie Nicholas. We lost 1-0. And you picked up the papers on the Sunday morning, and our... Championship hopes of winning the champion, uh, it was a championship then, not championship, championship mm. today, but the premiership today. Yeah. Um, no chance, absolutely no chance. So, mm. you know, well, they played one game and lost 1-0 away. Yeah. So it brought you, for me, playing for Manchester United, the, the expectations and how you're supposed to play, how you're supposed to win, and you had to win, that that got ingrained in me, so as a manager you 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 know you, you i can i could handle the expectations when they weren't when when we weren't reaching the expectations of what people on the outside and when I was started at Harlepool we go into social media as you mentioned there Phil yeah. it was only the internet um um the websites and them sort of they in, in right. them or uh, what's the term not websites um um, talkings, football talkings, and yeah, and, yeah. Um, and and that and message boards, message, message boards.
0: The blogs so there was yeah. this guy
1: at Hartlepool was up for some reason didn't like me for whatever reason, and he kept going on and on and on. So I I I, I pulled the media guy. I said, yeah. listen, so and, so and so and so. I said, uh, send this to him. Oh, you can't do that. I said, no, send this to him. <laughs> send send to this to him. Say, I'm inviting him to come down. I'm inviting him to come down to the ground, to have a cup of tea or coffee or have a biscuit, have an hour's chat with me. Let's talk about Hartlepool United, the past, the history, and the future, and the present. Yeah. Tell him to come down, come down, have a chat. Bang, out it went. Now, Loads of people. Oh yeah, get down there, go and have a chat with him. Fire into him, ask him this and that. He never come on for weeks. He never showed Not his, fair, you know, his pseudo name, Never came back on for weeks. So that was then. I can imagine now. Did, did he ever? Came. Did he
0: ever come? Did he ever visit you? Well, never came. No, I didn't never think so.
1: came. <laughs> did have the script to come. And a, a quick one. Robert. Howard Wilkinson, when he was manager of Sheffield Wednesday, yeah. kept getting letters. From this one person about Lee Chapman, now, if you knew Lee Chapman, he' was six foot three, six foot four, big tall center forward, blah blah blah, and this guy was criticizing Lee every every weekend following Monday, letter came Lee Chapman, this Lee Chapman, that, so Howard thought, I'll tell you what I'm going to take Lee, knocked on the front door of this guy, the guy opened the door, and there, looking in front of him, was Lee Chapman. so Mm. he then had a win in the house had a discussion with him and uh, you know was fine about it don't get me wrong but could you imagine that guy opening the door and their six foot lead standing in front of him you know so that was a way that Howard said
0: that that'd be a great way to deal with it I I don't think we get away with that in these days but there's a lot of people who are keyboard warriors right They're, no, no. They're, they're quite no. happy to say things on social media but if you put them oh, in front of the player or the manager they'd be, they'd no, be asking for autographs no. and asking for selfies and stuff well exactly um, so exactly. before we wrap up with, with what it is you're doing at the moment because I know you're working on some quite exciting projects at the moment you were you, who was the last club that you were with full time because I know you do a lot of things I was, as, I was, as a, I was a
1: CEO at, at Chesterfield I worked there for six right, years at Chesterfield that's wow. some
0: great so you've, you've literally played he, you've been every role in the game
1: well i've done everything uh, I, I've, um, yeah. I've played i've managed i've coached um i've been director of football director of sport i've uh, been chairman of 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 oh i've i've, I've, I've right. over 45 as i said earlier 45 years experience in the game the ceo at right. chesterfield and you know, i took I, I, I sold i brought players in um with the manager I brought Paul Cook to Chesterfield who was a fantastic manager he's back there now trying to revive him to get back into the league but um, he, he, he was fantastic well. for Chesterfield with Paul with other managers I sold 6.5 million pounds worth of the players um, whilst I was at Chesterfield people wow. don't realise that fans didn't real well no the fans did realise that but that was that was part of my job at Chesterfield of course. because the owner was funding the club they funded the move from the old Salter gate down to the brand new stadium. And they needed... You know, if we didn't raise these funds, he had to put more money in, and we want he wanted to develop a team, develop a players, develop a manager, and be able to sell players to keep bringing, you know, finance into the club. And I, um,
0: Chris, was that dif- was that difficult to manage the fans and their expectations with that? Because obviously, fans oh, naturally always. want to keep hold of their best players. So when always. somebody starts playing well and there's an opportunity to sell them at a heightened value because of their current well, form, well, you know that must be difficult to manage a fan's expectation.
1: Oh, unbelievable. We were, we were challenging League One for playoffs. And um, we had Owen Doyle, who we, Paula, brought from Hibernian on a free transfer. And um, we, he'd scored 25 goals before January the 1st. So, you know, you've got everybody reportedly coming in for him. And we sold him to Cardiff. Um mm-hmm. for the million, just under one million pounds. And um mm. the problem I'm is now from, from a free transfer. But the fans don't appreciate yeah. that because they want Owen Doyle staying in the team scoring goals. I wanted Owen Doyle staying at the club and scoring goals because it would have we eventually did still get into the playoffs. But mm. when a player who is on Owen was on – these aren't the exact figures, but they're not far. Owen was on around £1,500 a week at Chesterfield.
0: Right. And
1: he'd been offered £9,000 a week at Cardiff.
0: Yeah, so how do you compete?
1: How can you prevent somebody um, not earning that £8,000 a week more by play, doing the same right. job at a higher league um, – for this, you know, for that amount of money, it, you know, if we say That's no, a tough you're not sell going to anyone, isn't it? <laughs> near, It's no good to anybody. So my job then was no. to get the price. Sheffield United had offered hundred and twenty five thousand for Owen. Nowhere near. Right. Cardiff right. came in at about two fifty, and I was talking to um, uh, the China, the Chinese person, not the owner, but he was um, he was the chief exec at the time. And right. Yeah. Uh, he said, Put down on an email what you want. So, I put down one million pounds on an email. Right. And in the end, we saw we settled on 900, uh, fee, which was massive from 125 at Sheffield United 900,000, and then it was, uh, Another 100,000 on an international cap, so many on appearances and goals, and blah, blah, blah. But we've got Mm. just under a million pounds for Owen Doyle in the end. Beautiful. Which, you know, from a club's point of view, is excellent. From a fan's point of view, obviously disappointing. And I understand the frustrations, Mm. and I got quite a lot of criticism because we brought Liam Cooper in on a free transfer. I sold him for 800. We bought. Mm. Boy from Mansfield for 110,000, the most we spent, and I sold him to Hull for 1.3. Um, yeah. So I sold six and a half million pounds of the players in a five, six year period for Chesterfield. So I'm very proud about that because that be. kept the club going and helped um, alleviate more expense for the actual owner at the time.
0: Well, in an era when many clubs were, were you know, notoriously badly run and which is why they no longer exist anymore for many of them or they're now a Phoenix club that's risen from the ashes yeah I can see why that's a very proud achievement Uh, Chris before we wrap up I did want to finally ask you about go on
1: well, that's one of my biggest disappointments because when I've left Chesterfield, I've not been picked up by another club since in terms of right. helping people who buy football clubs. You know, I, I'm, a, um, I'm a consultant now, but, um, yeah. you, know, you know, I see all these people buying these clubs. I can help them either buy a club or help them once they've bought a club and advise them and help them and get the best out of their playing squad. And Obviously, players coming in, we talked about recruitment way back in this conversation. Yeah. I can help a lot of people and I can save them money and I can make them money. And I just wish that people would give me a ring and give me the opportunity.
0: Yeah. You know what? Uh, often it's a visibility thing, right? It's like out of sight, out of mind. Yes. Um, yes. And, and no, well, that's hopefully we can, football, we can do that's something to
1: Football support in a nutshell, Phil. Football in a nutshell. That is right. Player, manager, anything. If you're not in the face of people, people forget you and and there's always new kids on the block, etc., coming behind you
0: as well I'm um, hopefully somebody hears this sees this watches this and they get yeah. in touch i'll uh, i'll make sure that we leave your contact details in the show notes as well so that people yes. know how to get in contact with you uh, chris yes. before we wrap up i did have one final question because i know that you're working on some quite exciting things at the moment and there's different things going on in, in your world so what's your focus on right now you've mentioned the consultant you mentioned the mentorship what's what's going on in your world right now
1: well i've also set up a small business for for for, for clubs amateur or professional um Russ Green, an ex-associate of mine at uh, Hartlepool, Russ Green, um, we have set up a small company that take clubs abroad to uh, yeah. Southern Spain, um, Pinatar Football uh, Training Centre, and it's absolutely magnificent. I've got brochures and everything, so if there's any professional or amateur clubs that want to take their players abroad, Pre-season, mid-season, end of season, whatever. We've got a great facility that we work with for the players to develop uh, and obviously develop your team for the uh, oncoming season. We've uh, Stockport County have just come on board with us. They're going out with us in the summer. We've got a couple of championships and a couple of League Two clubs who are negotiating with them at the time. So that's a little um, side issue for me that keep me a bit that keeps me a bit that uh, keeps me busy
0: uh chris where can people find a website for this to come and kind of have a look because that sounds amazing
1: yeah on the ball the you'll find it on there
0: excellent so if you're listening to this on the podcast or the radio definitely check out the show notes they'll be in there if you're watching this on tv that it's already appeared on screen uh and then you can go to that website and engage chris this has been a real pleasure thank you so much for being here i've uh, i've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation i doubt it will be our last um, thank you so mm-hmm. much for joining us. It's been it's been a lot of fun. I think uh, you and I should do this over a beer at some point and go down the rabbit hole with yeah. some of stories. That sounds Love fun. To. Um, Love I'll to, let you friend. know when I'm next back Love in the to. UK, my friend.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Phil. Appreciate thank- it, and thank for anybody who watches and listens. Appreciate it. Thank you very thank you
0: much. So much. I appreciate you. Until next time, take care of yourselves. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you so much for watching this interview on Billionaires in Boxes. If you would like to join us as a guest on Billionaires in Boxes or indeed on Pollutia TV, all you have to do is email us at vipbookings at billionairesinboxes.com.